We're not going to start in John 10, but we're going to work our way there eventually. Uh, like last week, this will be a topical message, and so uh, you're not going to be able to follow along as we visit a number of passages, but we will be in John 10 for a bit. A hopeless leper sits outside the city, commiserating with his diseased companions. A well-respected Roman centurion feels powerless as he watches his beloved servant laying paralyzed. Two tormented men, ravaged by the effects of demon possession, haunt cold tombs by a herd of swine. A penniless woman leaves home knowing that this day, like every other day, was going to be a day of rejection and social stigma because she had been suffering each day over the past 12 years with a condition. Line men would set up shop outside the temple where they once again would cast their livelihood upon the scarce charity of faithless strangers. A father leads his family to the synagogue while contemplating whether God indeed is merciful or if he shares the heartless character of the legalistic religious rulers who dominated so much of their lives. It was in that type of culture that Jesus stepped into when he began his earthly ministry. Last week, we started in the Old Testament, remember, in the book of Genesis, and we began to look at God as shepherd. We learned that God is the shepherd of his people who provides a tender watch care over those who belong to him. We saw that he called other men to be under shepherds, men like Moses, men like David. We saw that David established his throne as the archetypal shepherd king and that one was promised who would come to ascend to that throne and to rule forever as the perfect shepherd. We then saw the failure of under-shepherds. We saw the prophets calling out the civil and religious leaders who were charged with the stewardship of caring for God's people. We saw that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other passages. And then we saw the close of the Old Testament really with a lack of resolution. The promise of the coming shepherd, the Davidic king, was still outstanding. The hearts of God's people, though returned from captivity, had not returned to him. And so the Old Testament kind of ends on a low note, yet with a note of hope that the promised shepherd king would still come. And so last week, we kind of ended right when we introduced Jesus. The good shepherd had come. God, who had promised to shepherd his people directly, had become incarnate in the person of Jesus. And so then Jesus steps into this culture, seeing the state of mankind all around him. And as we're going to see, he was grieved. And so how would that good shepherd respond to the state of affairs that we just described? Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is God himself, the divine shepherd, stepping into human flesh, expressing a grieved heart as he watches people laboring under the curse of sin. And so when we witness Jesus' incarnation in his earthly ministry, what we're witnessing is God coming to call out sheep 
who are harassed and helpless to come and to join his flock. The one with the perfect shepherd's heart is now here moved with compassion when he sees the suffering of the sheep. Matthew tells us that as Jesus perceived uh, the condition of the people, he saw them as harassed and helpless. Harassed in that they're dominated by a hypocritical, legalistic, unspiritual, religious class who, instead of leading them into relationship with their Creator, really burdened them with man-made religious rules. Instead of ushering them into the kingdom of, of, of heaven, they slammed the door of the kingdom of heaven in their faces. The religious class in Jesus' day were the spiritual progeny of those wicked under-shepherds that we saw last week, and they were just as unfaithful. These were men who claimed to be spiritual shepherds, but abused the sheep. The Bible says that Jesus also saw the people not only as harassed, but he saw them as helpless. That is, like sheep, they needed a shepherd. They were like a scattered flock, wandering, lost, hungry, thirsty, injured, in danger. They need provision, they need protection, they need guidance. And that which only a faithful shepherd could provide, Jesus was exactly the shepherd that the people needed. This morning, if you find yourself, maybe you could define yourself that way as feeling harassed and helpless, burdened by sin, your lostness, convinced that uh, you don't have the ability to cure your spiritual condition. Well, Jesus is the shepherd that you need to. So Jesus steps into this type of culture, uh, people like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, uh, and he is going to remedy the situation, and so he gets right to work. Matthew 9.35 says of Jesus' earthly ministry that he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Matthew 4.23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus came with the ability to alleviate the suffering of the sheep, those who are suffering under the curse of sin with all sorts of torments. And so he comes preaching the truth, calling men and women to relationship with the Creator and actually healing their fleshly diseases. Jesus' ministry was marked by words and works of mercy. Jesus didn't do miracles simply to impress. He didn't do miracles as mere showmanship. Jesus' miracles were acts of mercy, meant to convey both the power and compassion of the Lord. They lent credence to his claims that he was the Son of God. They provided a foretaste of the coming kingdom when all uh, disease and sickness and sin would be eradicated. And so everywhere Jesus went, he alleviated physical and social and spiritual and religious suffering. Jesus brought real rest to distressed people, a rest they had been denied by the reigning religious class. And so picture it. Jesus comes. I mean, physically now he's walking, and masses of individuals are flocking to Jesus and following behind him, like a rabbi, right? So the rabbi is teaching, and you've got masses of people actually following behind him, 
And so even though it's a metaphor, I mean, you can see that and say, that looks just like a shepherd leading a flock of sheep. And so the way in which Jesus conducted his earthly ministry was that like a shepherd calling into the wilderness and gathering together a scattered and suffering flock. He cried out, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And many came running. It's no wonder that Peter described our salvation this way. He said, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Jesus himself said that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, had finally come, and the harassed and helpless sheep could finally find rest for their souls. Now, I've been doing a lot of reading about sheep. I've been listening. I listened to a book about sheep. I've been going to sheeping websites. I'm getting the weirdest ads now on social media. Because a sheep has a thick coat of wool, sometimes it can be difficult to know how a sheep is suffering. Sometimes they might have a condition that's kind of hidden by that thick coat. And so what a faithful shepherd will do is he'll take his rod and he'll kind of uh, comb through that uh, thick coat of wool so that he can see the skin beneath. The the shepherd is attempting to detect uh, maybe some ailment that's otherwise unseen, some underlying problem. Maybe that's leading to the sheep's misbehavior. In this way, Jesus, too, could see right to the hearts of those who are tormented by their sin. He could see past the physical manifestations of soul suffering, and he could see and treat it at its source. Now, Although the Gospels feature so many accounts of physical healing, many accounts of Jesus healing those who were suffering Physically, they also record many instances where Jesus proved himself to be the shepherd of souls. And in all of this, as we begin to look at the ministry of Jesus, what we're doing is we're helping to set the pattern for the office of elder. As we as a church continue to think about our future and the appointment of faithful men who could serve as elders, we're going to begin by looking at the ministry of Jesus and how he treated uh, individuals and how he operated as shepherd. That's the purpose this morning. Jesus proved himself to be the shepherd of souls, looking past the outward, looking past even the sinful behavior of individuals and getting to the heart of the matter. In those situations, Jesus showed himself to have a keen awareness of just what it was that was distressing people and just how to bring rest. So like a good shepherd, Jesus was empathetic to suffering. Jesus was sympathetic to weaknesses and knew how to perfectly address both of those. I'll give you two examples. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus meeting a woman at a well, the Samaritan woman. In this woman existed a serious emptiness, which she sought to fill through illegitimate means. This woman's chosen idol was men. She longed for joy and happiness and security and meaning and felt that she could attain it through relationships. And so she burned through marriages. And even when Jesus meets her, she's living with a living boyfriend and he didn't bring happiness either. And so when Jesus met her, knowing her life situation, he knew exactly what she needed for true satisfaction. That would have been tough for us, being the cultural warriors that sometimes we are. 
If we're sitting across a well from a woman like this, we're very likely to be blinded by her sin. What you need to do is just clean up your life. Yet Jesus sees past this woman's sinful choices and even her religious misconceptions, if you know the story, and offers her exactly what her soul needed. She needed an intimate relationship with her Creator. She needed forgiveness. She needed eternal life. And so like a shepherd might lead a sheep to water, Jesus, remember, in John 4, offers this woman water that would well up in her like a well, like a spring, eternal life. She could find satisfaction, but only after she stopped her wandering and returned to the shepherd of her soul. And so Jesus called her, Jesus provided healing, and Jesus added her to his flock. Another example, there's another woman in Luke chapter 8. This is that woman who the Bible describes as having a discharge of blood. This was that woman who desperately touched the hem of Jesus' garment seeking healing. Remember the story. This woman suffered for 12 years, maybe since puberty, with a condition that left her persistently ceremonially unclean, socially ostracized. For all intents and purposes, this woman was an outcast, barred from the temple, barred from the synagogue. It was not permitted for her to mix with the crowd. But on this occasion, she kind of throws off in her desperation all social convention, and she pushes through the masses, and she reaches and she touches Jesus' robe, hoping for healing. The cover of the crowd provided her the anonymity that she desired, but just then, her worst nightmare... She touches Jesus' robe, she experiences healing, but then Jesus stops. He turns and he asks the crowd, who touched me? This woman at this time, I'm sure, was trembling. Her cover is blown. And so she comes through the crowd, trembling before Jesus. Would he be displeased with her actions? Would he reverse the cure that she knows she's just experienced? This woman has become acclimated to a life of solitude, and now she finds herself the center of attention with a spotlight on her. What is going to happen? And so with a mix of emotion, she testifies to Jesus and to the crowd, the moment I touched the hem of your garment, I was healed. What's amazing in that situation is how Jesus responds to that woman as we think about Jesus as the shepherd of souls. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 48, he says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In an act of tenderness and divine insight, Jesus calls this woman daughter. For 12 years, she'd felt the pain of rejection, and now he speaks a word of acceptance. For over a decade, she had felt cast out by the Jewish religious leaders, but now Jesus affirms her identity as a daughter of God. Jesus acknowledged her faith and told her she could be assured of her standing before her heavenly Father. She came with an anguished soul, but left with peace. As a shepherd might comfort a sheep distressed because it has been separated from the flock, Jesus offered this woman the comfort that she needed, and he welcomed her back into the fold. As the good shepherd, Jesus reminds us that individuals are souls. It's an important reminder in a culture where people like to define themselves based upon their political beliefs. People like to define themselves by their sexual preferences. It becomes too easy for us then as Christians to look at individuals and then also to define them on those bases instead of seeing individuals as precious souls 
made in the image of their creator who need Jesus' tender compassion and saving power. This is exactly what Jesus did as he welcomed sinners into the fold. Sinners. Culpable for their sin? Yes, absolutely. But we all exist in a fallen world, suffering the effects of sin all around us. We're all struggling with the influence of sin within us as well. Jesus understood the human condition perfectly and so maintained a compassion towards sinners, listen, while simultaneously rejecting their sin. Compassion towards sinners while simultaneously rejecting their sin. That's a perfect balance of holiness on one hand and compassion towards sinners on the other hand. It's highly unusual, that balance. It definitely was unusual in the religious context of Jesus' day. Sadly, it still seems to remain unusual in our day. We are terrible at balance. Hate the sin. Yes. Love the sinner. It's for this reason that when news got out about this man who was preaching repentance, yet who loved sinners, the sinners flocked to him. Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The religious class of Jesus' day were judgmental hypocrites. They saw sinners as enemies to be resisted instead of a mission field to be won. Consequently, the moral outcasts saw nothing appealing about that religious system. There was nothing to draw them to that religion. On the other hand, Jesus comes perfectly representing the holiness and compassion of the Father, and sinners come to him in droves. Instead of learning from his example, however, the Jewish leaders respond predictably. Luke 15, 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Sinners rushed to Jesus like a suffocating man, rushing to find fresh, cool air. They become accustomed to the stifling religion of the Pharisees and saw no relief in their system. The sinners in Jesus' day knew that they were enemies of the religious class and saw no hope in that system. What a reminder to us that standing in judgment of the world and viewing sinners as enemies is no way to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. We should preach the loving compassion of Jesus and pray that unbelievers see in us the same life-giving mercy that Jesus extended. The hard-heartedness of the religious leaders, who again were ostensibly operating as God's under-shepherds at this time, continually grieved Jesus. On this occasion, he responded to their criticism by telling a parable. And as we should expect, as Jesus responds to the hard-hearted religious hypocrisy of those operating ostensibly as God's under-shepherds, he tells a parable, and it's a parable about shepherding. Luke 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 
when the religious rulers saw sinners, they saw moral reprobates fit for judgment. When Jesus saw sinners, he saw wandering sheep in need of rescue. Just as a shepherd might leave the 99 who are safe and secure and go after that one lost sheep who's in danger, so too faithful shepherds should be willing to leave the confines of the comfortable religious community and seek out sinners. Because sheep are flock animals. When they're lost, they become distressed. The missing sheep in Jesus' parable may have been separated because it was fleeing a predator, or because, remember from last week, maybe it just fell over, couldn't right itself. Or maybe because it was injured. Regardless of the reason, its present state was one of distress, isolation. It was helpless in need of a shepherd who cared enough to leave the existing flock and actually go and seek it out. Note also in that parable, Jesus is sure to emphasize the joy that the shepherd experiences when he recovers the lost sheep. In fact, he's so happy. It's a little bit over the top here. He's so happy that he goes home and starts calling up his neighbors. You won't believe it. I found my sheep. And they're thinking, what's this guy talking about? He's got a hundred sheep. He's... He's so overcome with the fact that he's recovered one that has been lost. This is Jesus' way of capturing the Father's joy when a sinner repents of their sin and is restored to him. The religious elite were criticizing Jesus for being a friend to sinners. Incredibly, what they were actually criticizing was the heart of God towards the lost. They were so far removed from what should have been their calling as God's under-shepherds that when they actually saw somebody come behaving like a faithful shepherd, they were actually disgusted by it. And being a friend of sinners, Jesus was fulfilling God's promise that one day he was going to come and he was going to shepherd his people directly. That's what we saw last week in Ezekiel 34. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Because God has a compassion upon the lost. It was this compassion which led Jesus to see beneath their sin, right to its source, their soul anguish. He knew their problem was spiritual. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. It's for this reason that Jesus sometimes described his ministry as that of a physician coming to heal the sick in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Are there any righteous? No. He's talking to self-righteous Pharisees. I'm not here for you. I'm here for those who know that they're sick. You don't go to a doctor until you know that you're sick. You're not going to get the cure until you know what the, uh, that you're suffering. And so Jesus says, I've come, but I can only give the cure to those who know that they have the need. Spiritual shepherding requires a compassion upon the lost, a willingness to seek them out, a sensitivity to their real needs, and the ability to offer the appropriate spiritual solution. Then, when a sinner repents of their sin, a tender-hearted shepherd will rejoice knowing that God in heaven is rejoicing right along with him. And so Jesus has come. He has come as the shepherd of God's people. As such, he called men and women to himself. He led them to repentance. He gave them eternal life. He promised to be with them forever. Like a good shepherd, he provides everything they need for life and for godliness, protects them from the enemies of their souls, guides them into righteousness 
Yet there remains an aspect of Jesus' shepherding, which rises above all the rest, as we're going to see in a moment. And this brings us to John chapter 10. And here we're going to learn that Jesus, as the good shepherd, has come to secure the life of his sheep by sacrificing his own life. Look in John chapter 10, verse 1. I guess you can call that your 24-minute introduction. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. As stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." As we said last week, sometimes you might have multiple shepherds whose flocks are mixing together in the same pasture. And maybe they've come into a city and outside the city, their sheep are there with other shepherd sheep. And uh, in the morning when the shepherd goes out to his field, there's a gatekeeper. That gatekeeper seeing the shepherd, knowing that some of his flock is there, will open up that gate. That shepherd then will simply call out to his sheep, and those who belong to him, recognizing his voice, will separate themselves from the other flock, and they will come and they will follow their shepherd. In the first part of Jesus' parable about sheep, he presents himself as that true shepherd, who both owns and knows his sheep. What he's saying is that he has a special relationship with those who belong to him, and that's made evident when he calls out. When the voice of Jesus goes out, those who belong to him respond. This is a tender relationship, a trust, familiarity, dependence. When he calls out, they don't run from him. When he calls out, they run to him. This is a special relationship of, on the part of the sheep, dependence and familiarity and trust. On the part of the shepherd, it's care and knowledge and responsibility and ownership. Jesus' followers belong to him like sheep belong to a shepherd. He knows them intimately. He cares for them tenderly. He leads them gently. He protects them continuously. Whether one belongs to Jesus or not is revealed by how they respond to him. And this morning, as we share the gospel and as we uh, share Jesus' appeal and his invitation to come to him for salvation... Even this morning, we can maybe learn that there's some who belong to Him. There are those who have already confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, but maybe there's others who haven't yet responded to the voice of the shepherd. Well, maybe today is that day. If you've responded to Jesus' call to repentance and faith in Him, you've proven yourself to be His sheep. You've responded to the voice of the shepherd. Now, notice in verse 3, something else here. John 10, verse 3. Notice... That Jesus does not drive his flock, as some might drive cattle. But instead, what does it say? The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Leading instead of driving is only possible if the sheep following are following willingly and trustingly. This reminds us of Isaiah 40, where God himself promises, when Isaiah tells us of God, uh, that God will come and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently, gently lead those who are with young. 
Jesus does not drive his sheep. Jesus leads his sheep. He does not drive his sheep with fear and intimidation. Instead, he's proven himself to be meek and gentle and loving and compassionate and merciful and trustworthy. And so the sheep are then are naturally drawn to him. If one's concept of Jesus is that of a harsh taskmaster demanding compliance from his people under threat of disapproval and punishment, then they've gotten it wrong. Jesus leads the sheep. He does not drive the sheep. Notice also in verse 3, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them up. Well, we notice, first of all, that there's some that belong to him, so there's ownership there. He calls his own, but also he calls his own by name. Now, Jesus, as the good shepherd, is the shepherd of a multitude of men and women, millions of men and women the world over. And what we learn here is that he knows each one of them intimately. He knows them by name, personally. If you're a believer this morning, Jesus knows you. He knows your personality. He knows your character. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your worries. He knows your anxieties. He knows your struggles with sin. He knows your sorrows, he knows your regrets, he knows your feelings of guilt, he knows your feelings of failure. He knows who you are, and he knows exactly how he can meet the deepest longings of your heart, because Jesus knows his sheep. Next, in John 10, skip down to verse 7, we see that Jesus shifts to another sheep-related analogy here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will, uh, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I've come that they may uh, have life and have it abundantly. And there, when Jesus speaks of those coming to him finding pasture, that's a direct reference to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul and so on. Jesus is equating himself to the Lord of Psalm 23. The divine shepherd of David's psalm there provides rest and sustenance and spiritual restoration, and that one is present in the person of Jesus. Further, according to Jesus, if anyone would experience that rest, they must come through him. Salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. He said elsewhere that I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, according to the disciples. And so Jesus has presented himself as the good shepherd by stating he owns the sheep, by stating he knows the sheep, by stating that the sheep know his voice and respond to it, by stating that his leadership is the leadership that the sheep follow, that he's the one who provides true rest for the sheep. But then Jesus shows us something else that makes him the good shepherd. And that's in verse 11, starting in verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus states that he is the good shepherd who has laid down or has come to lay down his life for the sheep. The point is that if a shepherd is to be a good shepherd, 
He is one who's willing to put his life in danger for the well-being of the sheep. David recounted this in 1 Samuel chapter 17 as he stood before Saul. He says, Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's David as a shepherd. David understood that as a shepherd, protecting the flock meant potentially endangering his own life. But Jesus in John 10 is not saying that he has a willingness to potentially endanger himself for the temporal safety of his sheep. Rather, what he's saying is that he's come with the express purpose of laying down his life to secure salvation for his sheep. The rest and pasture which Jesus has promised to his sheep can only be secured through his substitutionary sacrifice. And so according to Jesus, only a good shepherd would give himself for the sheep in this way. It's because of this, his intimate relationship with the sheep. He says there that the other hired hand won't put his life on the line for the sheep because he doesn't love the sheep. The good shepherd, however, has a personal and intimate relationship, and so he has a, a far greater vested interest in saving the lives of the sheep. And so Jesus gives himself out of love. And so after a long history of unfaithful shepherds who are willing to sacrifice the sheep for their own profit, Jesus came to sacrifice himself for the sheep. His willingness to die for the sheep flowed from his tender care for the sheep. When he looked at the sheep, he saw precious souls. Tormented, yes, tormented by their lost state, but helpless to rectify it. And so as the good shepherd, Jesus was moved with compassion. He gave himself on the cross to defeat the enemies of their souls. And through his sacrificial death, Jesus secured salvation for his people. Because of the torment that the good shepherd endured, the sheep could experience rest. Because he bore the iniquity of his straying sheep, the sheep could find peace. Or as Isaiah put it, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he walked as the good shepherd, calling men and women to himself, showing them the path to spiritual rest. But what about after Jesus' death and resurrection? What happened after he departed? Who would continue to shepherd his sheep in his absence? That's where we turn to next. As Jesus carried out his shepherding ministry on earth, he kept 11 men especially close, the apostles. Jesus would continually find opportunities to teach these men, to correct these men, to be an example to these men. Why? His intention was to prepare them to be leaders of his people, to prepare them to be those upon whom he would build his church. And so these disciples, later named apostles, would be called by Jesus to adopt shepherds' hearts, to lead his people with the same tender compassion which he exemplified. And so he trained them throughout his earthly ministry, and that training even continued after his resurrection. And so you can turn there if you want to, but we're going to look at John 21. John 21. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. 
He says in John 21, verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead when they had finished breakfast. I'm sorry, when he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. After Jesus was arrested, Peter had succumbed to fear, denied Jesus three times. After his resurrection, Jesus mercifully comes to Peter and provides him with an opportunity to counter those three denials with three confessions of love. And Peter learned his lesson. Peter jumps at each opportunity and unashamedly expresses his love for Jesus. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, well, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Considering everything we've learned in the last two lessons, it's remarkable that Jesus here is entrusting his sheep further to under-shepherds. Because we learned the failure of the under-shepherds in the Old Testament. And then we saw promises that God would shepherd his people directly. And then we saw the coming of Jesus, the good shepherd who did shepherd his people directly. But now we have him delegating the shepherding of his sheep once again to further under-shepherds. Interesting. But you know that even this was prophesied in the Old Testament? Jeremiah 23, verse 4. The Lord says, I will set shepherds, plural, over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 3. And I will give you shepherds, plural, after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And so Jeremiah says, the day is coming when I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Do you wonder why before Jesus says to Peter, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, do you wonder why he first asks, do you love me? That's the test. Peter, do you first and foremost have a love for me? The answer, yes, Peter would be one of those shepherds after his own heart. And so God's plan to have his Messiah shepherd his covenant people directly did not preclude the delegation of those shepherding responsibilities to under-shepherds. In fact, such an arrangement was in God's plan from the beginning. This would be different, though, than those under-shepherds in the Old Testament. These under-shepherds under the New Covenant would be those who actually possess the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom the Bible refers to as Christ in us. And so these are those who would shepherd Jesus' sheep uh, with the Spirit of Christ within them. They would be Christ-like under-shepherds who would be led by the Holy Spirit, leading God's people just as Jesus would. And so Peter, and by extension the other apostles, were called to care for Jesus' sheep. They were entrusted uh, with his flock prior to his ascension. Then he was empowered. They were empowered by his Holy Spirit uh, when he descended there in Acts chapter 2. We see glimpses, I'll just share one passage with you. We see glimpses of that Christ-like shepherd's heart in the apostles. 
1 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul writes, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And there the apostle Paul shares that shepherd-like, Christ-like love for the church. We loved you. We love you to the point we're not ready to just share the gospel. We're willing even to, to give our lives, to share ourselves with you because you are so dear to us. There's the apostles assuming upon themselves a Christ-like shepherding care for the church. Though they could never atone for sin like Jesus did, they could care for sheep like Christ did by the power of the Holy Spirit. So does that seem strange to you that at this point the good shepherd has come, but now he delegates that uh, role to shepherds or to under shepherds, to the apostles? Well, if you think that's strange, it's going to get stranger. After the descent of the Holy Spirit, the apostles were only 12 in number. The church ballooned, exploded, 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost and thousands after that. The Lord's plan here with the 12 apostles, and they were only 12, was to kind of create like a new Israel and under a new covenant constituted by spiritually new people. And so uh, 12 tribes gave way to 12 apostles. There weren't going to be any more apostles. You got 12 and that's it. They're foundational to the church so that when their task was finished, they passed off the scene. But since God's plan did not include an apostolic succession, there are no apostles today. And if somebody calls themselves apostle, just run away from them. Uh, they're not an apostle. There were 12 apostles, and they're foundational to the church. Their role uh, is done, and uh, God is now building upon that foundation that's been laid. But how then would God continue on the shepherding work which Jesus entrusted to the apostles after their deaths? More urgently, how would that shepherding work be manageable even in the first century when the church was exploding in growth? Well, from the early years of the church in Jerusalem, we see that God's plan for the leadership of the church really included both the apostles and individuals that we call elders. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts chapter 15, verse 2, it says, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Even in the first century, when the, elders were or when the apostles were still around, we see uh, that that leadership structure included the addition of elders. Acts chapter 20, as Paul is passing through Ephesus, he kind of has a, a meeting with the elders there. This is kind of his goodbye as he's going to Jerusalem, expecting his own martyrdom. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And there you see church singular and elders plural. The apostles provided teaching and leadership and guidance and correction during their earthly lives while also penning the scriptures. However, their ministries were intended to be temporary. When they passed off the scene, the leadership model which they left in place was that of a plurality of non-apostolic elders exercising oversight in each local church. These men were charged with continuing in the apostles' doctrine and faithfully shepherding the flock with which they were entrusted. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Again, back to Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Again, speaking to elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That is nothing short of the entrusting to the elders with the flock of Jesus Christ. And Paul is sure to say the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is not contrived. This is not some man-made office. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. This is a stewardship which he has obtained with his own blood. And so from that text, it becomes apparent that when Jesus entrusted Peter and the apostles with the task of tending the lambs, he included with that the expectation that the apostles themselves then would train up other men who would be entrusted with the same responsibilities. And these are what we call elders. These elders were appointed by the Holy Spirit as overseers, entrusted with the precious flock that Jesus purchased with his own blood. These were serious responsibilities to be entrusted to men. Yet it was that delegation of shepherding and pastoral duties that has been the pattern of Christ's church from before we even get out of the New Testament and has continued to present day and will continue until the day that Jesus returns. Peter, to whom the flock was first entrusted, representing the apostles, later on would write this in 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's an apostle. But here in this text, he represents himself, presents himself as an elder. Why would he do that? Isn't that a demotion? What he's doing is he's revealing that the shepherding responsibilities that he carried out as an apostle, were exactly the same shepherding responsibilities that the elders were to carry out. And so he puts himself on the same level as the elders and say, Hey, elders, I as a fellow elder, encouraging you to continue to shepherd the flock. That leadership model of a plurality of elders in every local church, taking up the responsibilities of shepherding Jesus' flock, just as he would, again, in place from the beginning and continues to this day, So that Paul, when he leaves Titus in Crete, remember that year and a half we spent in Titus? He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. For Paul, a church without leadership was out of order. And a church wasn't in order until what? A plurality of elders was appointed to oversee that church. So, as we conclude... The legacy of the apostles would be carried on in local churches as a plurality of elders would assume the task of shepherding Christ's sheep. And so in our church, our desire is to fall in line with God's design for his local church and ensure that we are led by a plurality of qualified elders who are determined to shepherd the flock just as Jesus would. And when we do that, we can be confident that we're following a biblical pattern, right? This is not some polity contrived by man, but we're seeking to follow the leadership model that's been laid out for us in Scripture. The terms elder, pastor, and shepherd, all interchangeable in the New Testament. They each refer to the office of overseer, which God has instituted as the pattern of leadership in the church. And so this morning, if you are a man who desires the office of elder, as you consider whether or not you have the desire and are qualified for the office, 
you should know that this is nothing short of taking up a delegated oversight over Christ's sheep. To be an elder is to be entrusted by the Holy Spirit with a stewardship over the flock for whom Jesus gave his life. It's to serve as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd with a willingness to one day give an account to him for how well we have shepherded. As stewards of the good shepherd's sheep, we as elders must lead in love like Jesus. We must share a Christ-like compassion which is moved by the spiritual plight of others. We must be empathetic towards the suffering which sin inflicts. And we must desire to usher others into spiritual rest, the spiritual rest that only Jesus offers. We must be so tender-hearted and so spiritually minded that we can perceive the hidden hurts of others and offer appropriate spiritual solutions. We must embody the good shepherd's balance between loving compassion, between loving holiness, while also showing love to sinners. Finally, as shepherds, pastors, or elders, we must recognize that to follow Jesus in shepherding means the likelihood that we may also have to suffer for the sake of the sheep. And so if that's you this morning, men, as you think about your desire and qualifications for shepherding, I hope that all of this helps you to understand the weightiness, the weightiness of shepherding, while also sparking within you a passion to be used of God to oversee his sheep. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your wise design when it comes to the church. We pray that you'll just help us as a church to fall in line with what is clearly laid out for us in Scripture. We pray that you'll raise up men as elders, men who aspire to the office to be used of you to lead your people, and uh, help us as a church to recognize such men. In the coming weeks, as we consider the qualifications for eldership, I pray that you will reveal to us, show us men who are qualified, who hold those qualifications while also aspiring to the office, and I pray that you provide for us as a church uh, godly shepherds who could serve as under-shepherds under Christ, leading and loving like Jesus. And then lastly, Lord, if there's anybody here uh, this morning who has not yet come to Jesus, I pray that they'd respond to the gospel, responding to his voice, seeing that he is the one and the only one who is Savior and Lord, that there's salvation in none other. There's no other way to the Father except through him. And Lord, we know that you rejoice when a man or woman repents of their sin, coming to Jesus for salvation. Help us to rejoice along with them. Lord, we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.